Good morning, family. I always find it rewarding to prepare a message for this pulpit. Our study of Mark has enriched me and hopefully you too with the knowledge of God, of us, and most importantly, Christ our Savior. And today, this week, it's no different. So just a short review for those who might be new. Mark, we're in the Gospel of Mark, was a traveling companion of the Apostle Peter and wrote down things that Peter had taught. So that's why people call it sometimes the Gospel of Peter according to Mark. This book is generally considered the earliest of the Gospels and was written to the Christians of Rome who were under the persecution of Nero. They had an urgent need to hear this gospel message. It gave them the first written record of the ministry and works of their Lord and Savior, the Son of God. In chapter 12, as you recall, Jesus is in Jerusalem during the Passover. It's an annual celebration. Jesus is on a time schedule it's Wednesday of what we call Passion Week, and he knows that it's the last week of his life. Time is short. By Friday, he'll be crucified. And ever since chapter 11, Jesus has been fending off attacks from religious leaders, one after the other. Jesus has undergone a series of tough questions by the Pharisees, the, Heber the Herodians, the Sadducees, handling questions on taxes, question on a hypothetical situation about the resurrection, and then the last one from last week, which Elia taught on, was trying to entice him to say something against the law of Moses by asking him what the greatest commandments were. In every case, he just silences them. His answers are perfect because he is absolutely perfect. No one could have fielded these questions and responded in the way that he did. And he always answers them masterfully. So much so that at the end of the last passage last week, verse 34, Mark writes that, and from then on, no one dared to ask him any more questions. They threw everything they could at him, and the way he answers their final question just blows them away and they don't want to ask anything else. But now Jesus goes on the offensive. He has parried their attack as they have come against him, and now he offers up his own challenge to them. This week we are studying in a small section, it's only three verses, but it gives us some great insight into the person and work of Jesus. Things are not always what they seem on the surface. And that's what we're going to see in this passage. There's often more than meets the eye. Jesus teaches from a section of scripture, setting up what seems to be a riddle to his hearers. We are going to hear his thoughts about the inspiration of the Old Testament. Today, he exposes the misconceptions of the religious leaders concerning the coming Messiah and at the same time, he provides clues to them of his true identity. 
He also sheds light on the most important question that anyone can ask. Just who is Jesus? This question was the main issue for people of that day and continues to be today. The answer to this question is different for us than it is for Catholics, Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, or Muslims. Your view of who Jesus is, coupled with your trust in him, will determine where you go when your time on this earth is through. So let's open up our Bibles, and I'll be reading from Mark chapter 12, verses 35 through 37. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth that we find here. As we look at what your word says, help us to lay ourselves aside. Lay aside what might be in our own minds. Lay aside what the world might tell us. Help us focus only on what you tell us. And I pray that you would help us to follow you. I pray that the words that I speak may be yours and not my own, and that our study this morning will glorify you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So one of the first things you might notice in this passage is that Jesus is teaching in the temple. This is the kind of thing that to just pass over when you're casually reading the scripture. Jesus is teaching in the temple. And the crowd is enjoying listening to him. Sounds wonderful. It's a large crowd and they enjoy hearing him. The reason why this is kind of strange is because the leaders of the temple have control of the temple guards and they don't like Jesus and they don't want Jesus teaching there. They want him to die. They want him to stop. But they're not stopping him. And some people might ask, why? What's going on here? At that time, there was incredible tension, especially there in the temple. There are literally leaders in the facility of that temple who want to kill Jesus. And he's teaching in front of crowds, and those leaders don't want him teaching at all. But they can't stop him because the crowds enjoy listening to him. There's only so much policing that can be done in any community, and if enough people rise, it then causes big problems. The thing is, the crowd controlled what happened more than the leaders did. Now here's the background for this passage. The Jewish people had a wrong belief about the Messiah. They believed he was going to be a man, but only a man. They believed that he was going to be an earthly king. 
They believed that he was going to be a man with great power, and he was going to conquer all of Israel's enemies and lead them into a kingdom where they would be exalted. And he would fulfill all the promises made to Abraham and to David. And so, of course, that's what the scribes taught. Their view was that the Messiah was coming to save the nation. But their view was not that he was coming to save their individual souls. But now Jesus says, wait a second. Jesus now takes the opportunity to ask a question. And he uses Psalm 110. And Jesus, by quoting this psalm, challenges their view and what they had taught. This psalm is the most quoted part of the Old Testament, which has been referred to in the New Testament, meaning that the New Testament writers quote Psalm 110 more than they quote anything else in the Old Testament. This was and is a very popular psalm, and everyone knew that it was what they call a messianic psalm, meaning that it was promising what the Messiah, the Christ, would be like what he would be like and what he would do when he came. So Jesus doesn't quote a little-known passage. He goes right to the very familiar Psalm 110. And the common view taught by the scribes was that the Christ would be, as we've seen in the language throughout Mark, Christ would be the son of David. That would be a title of his meaning that he would be a physical descendant of David, the king. This is the same David that, as a very young man, went up against the giant champion soldier of the Philistines named Goliath. And using his sling, struck Goliath with a rock and killed him. Then David became the greatest king of Israel that they ever knew. David was their hero. If you were a little boy, you wanted to be like David. And so they looked to him and they saw that all these promises, those promises in the Old Testament, said that the Christ, the Messiah, would come as a descendant of David. And they were right in believing that. We see that promised in 2 Samuel 7, Psalm 2, Jeremiah 33, Isaiah 9. They were right in believing that Christ would be a descendant of David. But that's all they believed about it. They looked at one or two verses and developed their entire theology of who the Christ would be. And they neglected to look at the whole of the Bible for all the promises of what Christ would be. So Jesus exposes them here. This is one of the biggest reasons they rejected Jesus. They say, okay, The Christ is the Savior that's coming. He's going to be the son of David, a descendant of David. So he's going to be like David. He'll be a king like David, a physical defeat. He'll physically defeat all of our enemies. He'll be a true political ruler. He's going to kick the Romans out of all of our land. That's their logical conclusion. And so they rejected Jesus because when he came... He didn't say, hey, you know what, guys? I'm the Christ. I'm a political leader. I'm going to kill the Romans. I'm going to go take the throne of Jerusalem 
and I'm going to be a political king, and all we Jews will have our land back again. If he would have said that, the people of that day would have said, yes, you've finally come, because that's what they expected. So in verse 35, here's the question that Jesus poses to them. And it comes in two parts. And rather than read here in Mark, I'd like you to go to Matthew 22. So Matthew 22, that's the parallel passage to this one. It records the same encounter, but has a couple of added points that we want to look at. So Matthew 22, starting at verse 41. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, The son of David. And he said to them, How is it then that David, in the spirit, calls him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? What? Whose son is he? Mark frames the question um, a little and adds something to it. And you kind of take them together. And if you put them together... Um, it's kind of like, how is it that the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? So it's actually a two-part question. How is it that the scribes say that he's the son of David? And then he says, whose son is he? The scribes say he's the son of David, and that's true. That's right. Everywhere in the Old Testament, we see the foretelling of the Messiah and describe him as in the line of David. Let's look at one of those in Psalm 89, verses 34 and 35. I have made a covenant with my chosen. I have sworn to my servant David, your seed I will establish forever and build up your house to all generations. I have sworn to David that his seed, when coming in his line, will be on the throne of Israel. And that throne would be an eternal one. So you can see a very strong messianic prophecy there in Psalm 89. If we had time, we could go to 2 Samuel 7, 2 Samuel 12, 2 Samuel 16, 2 Samuel 17. All of these describe the Messiah as David's son. And that's what the scribes say. That's true. They understand. It's a very interesting point, though, because all the birth records were held at the temple at that time. And whose son people were, was, was a really important thing for the Jews. Think about it. They knew that the Messiah had to be in the line of David. And they had the records available to them. I'm sure that they checked and they found that Jesus was in the line of David. He was in the line of David through Mary, and he was in the line of David through Joseph. Mary, the bloodline, Joseph by adoption. He had the right to rule. He had the right to be king. 
So they knew he was qualified to be a son of David. Their problem wasn't so much understanding who the Messiah was going to be. He was going to be a son of David. That's what scripture clearly says. And I'm sure they checked. They just won't accept that Jesus is the Messiah. Because all of the reasons we've already said, he just doesn't fit their expectation. But they're missing the most important part because the question goes beyond that. Jesus says in Mark 12, 36, David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David, David himself calls him Lord. How is he his son? Saying, in what way is the Christ is Christ David's son, if David says that Christ is his Lord, you would never call your son your Lord. That's Jesus' reasoning. So how is he his son? In the Hebrew, when we read the first Lord, this is a, a loss of translation here, because in the Hebrew, the first Lord is different from the second Lord. The first Lord is Yahweh, which is the personal name for God the Lord. Yahweh is the name that the Jews were afraid to even write for fear of taking that name in vain. The second Lord is Adonai. Yahweh God said to my Adonai, something you refer to as your, someone you refer to as your master or your king or as your sovereign, high sovereign in the world. So he says, Yahweh, God the Father, said to Adonai, the Messiah, the Christ, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. It's not the same word, it's different. In other words, he's saying, God the Creator said to God the Messiah. Matthew twenty-two forty-two says, whose son is he? And then they said to him, the son of David. And he said to them, how then does David in the spirit, of him, uh, spirit call him Lord, saying, and then he quotes Psalm 110, how is it that he's the son of David? David would call him Lord? The father doesn't call his own son Lord. How could he be both son and Lord? How could the son be the Lord? Go with me to Psalm 110. All right, this is where it comes from. Psalm 110 says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Sit at my right hand. Sit in the place of honor. Sit at the place of authority. Sit at the place of God until I destroy your enemies. How can the Messiah be just a man? They have no answer. This particular psalm was also used by Peter in a very powerful way after Pentecost. He uses it to explain to the crowd who this Jesus is. Peter uses this psalm in this way. We look at Acts 2, verses 34 to 36. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until your enemies are your footstool. 
Let all the house of Israel, therefore, know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Sit at my right hand, the place of authority and the place of honor. How is that possible if he's just a man? I'd like to point out one other thing. He says, how does David say in the spirit or by the spirit? That is an interesting confirmation of the scripture. Jesus himself points out that David wrote Psalm 110 by the spirit. All scripture is written by the spirit, as Peter states. 2 Peter 1, verses 20 to 21. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but by men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. This is inspiration. This is the supernatural way that God provided his truth to us through the writers of the Word of God. And that's what Jesus confirms in the Matthew account. How can David say, by the Spirit? The Spirit reveals that Jesus is not only the Son of David, but he is the Son of God. And, this is, and by this, he is to have authority. All the authority of God and all the honor of God were promised by our Savior, by the Spirit. And that's what Jesus claims in John chapter 5. So let's go there. We'll read John 5, verses 20. 1 to 23. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. So Jesus says, I deserve the same honor. I have the same power. I have the same authority. I am God. In Matthew 4 and John 9 and Mark 5, he accepts worship. Only God can accept worship. Jesus doesn't stop anyone from worshiping him because he's God. And that's essentially what he's confronting the religious leaders with. Just how can you think that the Messiah was only a man when in your scriptures, David by the Spirit says that the Son is Lord and the Father is Lord? It's very similar to Isaiah chapter 44. So let's go to Isaiah 44, 6. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first, I am the last, Beside me there is no God. Two are one. The Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first, I am the last. Beside me there is no God. That's what he was telling the Jewish leaders. That's what his question led them to, right in Psalm 110, right in the riddle that they could not answer in the psalm they knew so well. And so, they were silent. So Jesus is saying, David himself knew 
that the Christ was not merely a son from him, but also his Lord. Jesus is saying to these scribes, you're not wrong in believing and teaching that Christ is the son of David. I am. I'm David's descendant. I'm fully man. But there is so much more. I'm so much more. He's saying to these scribes, they reject me because they zero in on just the, quote, Jesus is the Christ, the son of David, a human. That's all they're focusing on. He says that David himself says, I, Jesus, am his Lord. He says, I'm so much more than just a human being in the line of David. I'm God. I'm David's Lord. I'm fully God and fully man. That's what Jesus is getting at. He's trying to show these people what he's been claiming the whole time and what God has been saying the whole time in the Old Testament. They just neglected that and they didn't investigate that. They just zeroed in on the Christ is the son of David. A few weeks back, I taught in this same chapter from the verses about when the Sadducees came to Jesus with all their cynicism and all their hostility, they came with this question, with an absurd question of a woman being married seven times and then asking Jesus, whose wife will she be in heaven? And do you remember what Jesus said to them? Those Sadducees. He said to them, is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you neither know the scriptures nor the power of God? Essentially, Jesus said to the Sadducees, have you guys, you experts, actually been reading your scriptures? Have you been reading your Bible? And so now with a slightly different motivation behind the question, he essentially asks the same question to those attending the worship service in his temple. Jesus asks, do you know your Bible? Do you know the scripture? How can the scribes say in verse 35, how is he his son? Search the scriptures. How can this be possible? It's a good question. Do you know the Bible? I think it's an excellent question. Perhaps a more important question for us to consider this morning is the question of, do you know Jesus? Do you know Jesus? Do you know Jesus? Who, as we learn in this portion of Mark's gospel, is the son of David, but who's also the Lord of David? We remember that it's very possible to know the Bible, but not know the Lord Jesus Christ. It's very possible to recite the Bible, to memorize the Bible, to give intellectual agreement to the truth that we have in the Bible, but at the same time, be entirely unchanged by what you see in it. So now we remember the scribes are the guys who profess to know the Bible. The Old Testament is all that existed of the Bible at that time. They professed to know it better than anyone else. They knew it was the word of God, and they held to it, and they taught it, and they were essentially the authority at that time. So Jesus challenges their view of the Christ, who was so often promised through that same Old Testament. 
He was a long-expected king and savior that would make all things right when he came, who had come to establish a kingdom that would never end, that would put an end to injustice and to suffering and bring in the kingdom of God. And so everyone knew there was to come a Christ. And the scribe said, this is what the Christ is like. And they said, he's the son of David. He'll be a king. He'll be powerful. He'll be political. But that's not true. And so the question for each of us is, do I simply know things about the Bible? Or do I know with all my heart, with all my soul, with all my mind, with all my strength, the transforming power of Jesus Christ as Savior and King, who is my friend, who is also my Lord. To know the power of the gospel and the wonder of God's working in time and in circumstances in our life. And Jesus told them, no, it's just the opposite. You are the opposite of what it is to know the law and to know God. So he attacked their theology. He also attacked their lives. He attacked their personal hypocrisy. He did not only teach, they did not only teach falsely, but they lived falsely. And he called them out for it. He called them out of their corrupt business practices. All of the various ways that they made money in the temple, he attacked and exposed. But worst of all, the thing that just culminated their hatred of him was in John chapter 10. It's also in John chapter 5, 29. Jesus is speaking. He says, My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my hands. I and my Father are one. That's it. That's the ultimate reason they hated him. And why? Well, in, in verse 31, then the Jews took up stones against him in that same chapter and said uh, to, to stone him. And then Jesus said, many good works have I shown from my father. For which of those do you stone me? And the Jews answered him saying, for a good work we do not stone you, but for the blasphemy because you made, because you being a man made yourself God. And that's what Jesus claims in John chapter 5. In John chapter 5, verse 21, Jesus says, For as the Father raises the dead and gives life to them, even so the Son, the son gives life to whom he wills. For the Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son, that all should honor the Son just as they honor the Father. So Jesus says, I deserve some, the same honor, the same power. I have the same authority. I am God. And while he does that, that are, there's something that I don't want you to miss. But it's underneath many of the encounters with these rulers. When he answers this question, when he tells them exactly who he is, and when he does this by using their scriptures, the Old Testament, and specifically King David, who he, they revere, he is in reality inviting them to accept the truth. 
But Jesus framed the question in such a way that it was not only an indictment, but it was also an invitation. These were his enemies, these who have tried to trap him and discredit him, these who are planning to kill him. He's still inviting them because he's still offering himself up to them. Jesus is still the compassionate evangelist inviting sinners headed for hell to reconsider their thoughts of who he is. Listen to Ezekiel 33, 11. It says, Say to them, As I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways, for why will you die, O house of Israel? God has no pleasure in the death of the wicked. It is why Jesus wept over Jerusalem in Luke 19, because he knew what was coming. They had rejected their Messiah, and now judgment was on the way. And it brought him to tears for their lost opportunity and for what they were about to rightly suffer. These Pharisees, these Sadducees, if you looked at it from a New Testament perspective, probably have as hard of hearts as you can imagine. It's hard to see anybody with harder hearts. Today, we might say that they have a confirmation bias, rejecting any evidence which goes against their paradigm. We see the heart of God toward these Jewish legalists in the parable of the prodigal son in Luke 15, where at the end of the parable, he pleads with the indignant older son to join the celebration. Do you remember that? But this paradigm that they have can be a great barrier. We remember what Jesus said after the rich young ruler went away despondent after Jesus made him aware that his riches had become an idol. We see this in Mark 10, 24 to 27. After the rich young ruler had left, and Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With a man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. That's very weird, isn't it? But in a very real sense, it is the essence of salvation. Salvation requires a miracle. It's not something in the mind of man. It's not something in the will of man. It's not something in the evidence you present. It's, in fact, a transformed life. It's the, is only a thing that God can do. It requires a miracle. But from a human standpoint, from our standpoint, it requires a change of heart, a turning. That's the amazing, mis uh, interesting mystery. But man can't come on his own. 
with his own thought process and his own will because his own will is set against God, just like these men. They were set against God, and they are determined to kill the Son of God. Nothing is going to dissuade them. And this argument isn't going to dissuade them, lest you lose focus on this. These are those enemies of God with those hard hearts. But God can and does change even the hardest of hearts. John 19, verses 38 to 39, we see this. And after this, Joseph Joseph of Arimathea, he's a Jewish leader, you remember that? Maybe even a member of the Sanhedrin. Being a disciple of Jesus, he may have even been in front of Jesus as he was talking on the temple grounds this day but secretly for the fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took the body. And Nicodemus, who at first came to Jesus by night, also came, bringing a mixture of Marinellas, almost 100 pounds. So two of them came. Two of these hard-hearted Pharisees that you would never have given any chance of coming to Jesus, they came. But I'll show you something else. Turn with me to the book of Acts, Acts 6, verse 7. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and many a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. The priests, these hard-hearted religious rulers, many of the priests became obedient to the faith. So we can see God's grace operating here. Those who would have given up, you would have given up hope for. If you had looked at these men and seen the hardness of their hearts, and the plans that they had for Jesus, you never would have thought that they could be saved, but they were. So there is a little lesson here for us. Don't give up hope. Never give up hope. I don't care how hard your loved one is set against God, or your neighbor, or your fellow worker, or anyone in your family. They can be outwardly harder than any Pharisee and any scribe, or the Sadducees here, so don't give up hope. So Jesus asks each of us the same question he asked the disciples. Let's turn back to chapter 8 of Mark and look at that question again. Mark 8, 29 to 33. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, 
He, Jesus, rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Peter knew he was the Christ, but Peter's understanding was incomplete and needed to be corrected. Just who is Jesus? This question was the main issue of the people of that day and continues to be today. Your view of Jesus, of who he is, is coupled with your trust in him, and that will determine where you go when your time on this earth is through. So what Jesus is helping us see here, that when it comes to what you believe and what you do, if they're not being shaped by what Paul calls the whole counsel of God, all of the Bible, you're going to be living wrongly. Some of us know a little bit about the Bible and on key verses. We key in on those verses, and we live by those verses, neglecting the rest of the Bible. Sometimes people's interpretation of those verses are clearly wrong because they contradict other parts of the Bible. And they're not willing to look at the whole thing and go, well, I think it's saying this. But is it saying that? Well, the best commentary on the Bible is the Bible. So when we develop our entire theology over one or two verses, you think, I'm loving God, and I'm obeying God. And you might actually be disobeying because you're interpreting it wrong. And you don't look to the wealth of God's revelation to help you see through systematically what God says, who he is, what he says you're created for, and what we should do and what we should believe. Two things I'd like us to notice today. Number one, Everyone is a theologian. Everyone is hungry for and seeks after a knowledge of God. Some suppress this hunger, but it's always there. You are a theologian. It's not just for professors. Everyone does theology. What we think about God, what we believe about God, and who he is, and who we are in relation to him. And everything in the Bible consists of teaching. Are you a theologian? That's not the question. You are. But are you a good one? Are you trying to be a good one that understands what God is saying in his word? Theology is not just for some people. It's for everyone. Because you believe something about everything. And we should make sure that we do the best we can, and it's focused on what God says in his word. Second thing, which we'll end on today, is this. The most destructive lies are going to be at least halfway, or maybe even mostly, truths. The worst lie is not just, hey, God doesn't exist, because what we do when we hear that is just say, I don't believe that. A worse lie is like this. God does exist. Jesus is God, 
And if you love him, he'll make you rich. And that's a lot true. But then when you get to the last part, you go, rich in what way? Physically? Financially? You'll never get sick? You'll be wealthy? And you say, you were pretty right up until there, but that last part, yes, the most destructive lies are a lot of the way true. And then the lie comes in at the end, and it twists it, and it deceives, and it destroys. Most of the errors in the church today, and there are a lot of them, exist and are believed and are taught and are practiced because people neglect to look at the whole counsel of God. But they zero in on a few verses and lead people to hell by keying in on those verses without cross-referencing and making sure their interpretation is right. There are whole strands of different theologies and different false doctrines that are lies and that may lead many people to hell. They're not just a little bit off. There are some that are so spectacularly wrong that they're deadly. They're leading people to trust in a false gospel, not trust in Jesus. All throughout history, church history, people have been tripped up about who Jesus is. Jesus essentially says to the scribes in our study today, you don't believe I'm God, you believe I'm a man, I'm just a man, or that Christ is supposed to be only a man, but the Christ revealed in Scripture was promised to be God and man. You reject that, so I will reject you. And friends, if you reject Jesus being God, you're not a Christian, and there is no hope for salvation for you. A man can't save you. Only the God-man, Jesus, who went to the cross for us, can save us. If Jesus isn't divine, we're not in him. So this should be a very sober reminder of just how important it is for all of us. It's not just because theology and doctrine are important, but also because what we believe determines how we live and how we think. We should remember to look at the whole counsel of God. That's why you need to receive preaching. That's why we need to gather with the church. That's why you need to be in a close fellowship so we can study the Bible communally and not be in our own false ways and in our own errors and keep going. Well, our scripture verses end today with the words, and the great throng heard him gladly. Sounds nice, but it's a pitiful response. So much privilege, so much opportunity. Can you imagine being there in front of Jesus? Here he was, the Messiah, the God-man, right in front of them, and they're getting all the evidence that he could give them, yet they continued to be just entertained. Where's the affirmation of who he is? They thought he was really cool, but they didn't bow. They didn't repent, and in two days, some of them will cry, crucify him. Jesus is on display in the Bible every place we look. No less so here, maybe more so, because here Jesus clearly points right to the scripture and says, look, this is me, I'm the son of man. 
I'm in the line of David, but I'm more than that. I am God come in the flesh. Often our very first impression of something is wrong. There's more that meets, than meets the eye. And this morning, if you think Jesus is just this, this really nice Jewish guy who descended from David, who had some pretty cool teaching, you're wrong. Jesus never claimed to be a mere nice guy or merely a wise teacher. He claimed to be God. He claimed to be David's Lord. And the only way you can have a relationship with God, the only way you can have your sins forgiven, the only way your life can be made whole and all the pieces put back together is you have to bow to Jesus as Lord, just as David did. Listen to what C.S. Lewis had to say about this. I am trying to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, that is Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, they say, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is one thing we must not say. A man who is merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall on his feet at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us, and he did not intend to. Hypocrites may fool fellow Christians, but God is not mocked. God sees through the thoughts and intents of our heart. He sees our hypocrisy. He sees our false pretense. He sees us for who we really are. And that's why we have to come before him and say, holy, holy, holy. We have to fall on our face like Isaiah when he saw the Lord high and lifted up, like John falls as though dead when he sees Jesus as he is now in all his glory. Will you turn to Christ this morning as your Lord? Let's pray. Father, thank you for our time together as our family. Thank you for your word. How profound it is. Help us to grow in our trust of you. Lord, as we grow in our knowledge of you, help us break down any barrier keeping us from a closer walk with you. Help us to be humbled in every aspect of who we are and help us to be grateful to the point of total devotion to you, Lord, that you might use us however you see fit, wherever you see fit, for your glory until we can be with you and see you face to face. In Jesus' name we pray.